This is Hebrews 20:20. We see Jesus, and it is increment 297, and it's going to be the the Greek title is Ta Haima to Christu, which is simply the blood of the Messiah, the blood of the Messiah. But the English title that we're going to have for today's message or tonight's message is We See Jesus, the Testator, T-E-S-T-A-T-O-R. We see Jesus, the Testator. And that's going to be a new title as far as we're concerned about Jesus, the Testator. And as usual, or as somewhat usual, we'll pray now. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for you to pour out your grace that we may transcend ourselves, live outside of ourselves in him as we go from this message. Bless all those who are listening to this message either alone or husbands and wives or friends or two or three, wherever two or three are gathered. And we know that wherever two or three are gathered, the special presence of Jesus Christ is manifested in their midst, in our midst. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We see Jesus the testator. And I'm wearing this heavenly blue shirt in honor of our heavenly homily, Hebrews, and our heavenly Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. I also looked at the tag. It's made in Vietnam, just like so many men were in the last century. Hebrews 9, 1. Now, indeed, the first covenant. I'm going to read. I was debating whether or not to do this, and I decided to do it. I'm going to read our translation, my translation, a working translation, not a perfect one, but our working translation with minor tweaks and minor bracketed commentary. First, from Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now, indeed, the first covenant, meaning, had associated with it regulations for service and a cosmic sanctuary. A tent was furnished, the first compartment in order of approach of which was called the holies, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second curtain was a section called the holy of holies, having the golden altar and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant. And above the ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. He doesn't choose to speak of the types in detail, though he will speak of what they represent in great detail for the rest of this chapter and chapter 10 for that matter. These things being prepared just so into the first room of the tent, the priests keep entering all the time. That's repeatedly, diapantos, regularly, implying, implying repeatedly, performing their service. This is the priestly ministry, and Jesus Christ serves as a priest also, according to Hebrews 8, 1-2, in a different kind of priesthood. 
But into the second compartment, verse 7, once a year, only the archpriest goes. And that's a reference to the Kohen Hagadel, or the archpriest in Leviticus 16, 17, with a gesture to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the annual Day of Atonement. He goes in never without blood. <clears throat> this is part of our blood trail, part of the blood groove of the sword of the word. Here, this phrase, never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. By this, says verse 8, the Holy Spirit is making clear that not yet disclosed is the road to the Holy of Holies. That is ton hagion, hodon. While the first tent has standing, that's stasis. We've re related that to the AD 70 trajectory and the destruction of the first tent, which is in essence the stone temple in Jerusalem. Verse 9, this is a symbolic representation for the present time, the present time being the present of the writer and his initial readers, in which both gifts and offerings are still being offered, which are not able to completely cleanse, teleao, the conscience of the worshiper. Having only to do with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, as we know from Romans 14, 17, these ritual foods and, and drinks and various ritual washings are not what the kingdom of God is all about. Regulations involving the body, and that, of course, is until the offering of the body of Jesus once for all, in Hebrews 10.10, 10, imposed until the time of the correction. Deorthosis, I think, we've made sort of clear, is sort of dynamically equivalent with apocatastasis, anakephaliosis, polyngenesia, and other words that have to do with the universal restoration of all things or connected to the universal reconciliation. Verse 11, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come, that's the alteration of the situation, and are coming, that's the alteration of the condition. The alteration of the situation occurred in the first coming of Jesus Christ, the alteration of the condition of everything and all human beings and all of the universe happens in the third coming of Jesus Christ. We're in the in-between period between these two great alterations when Jesus has come to be with the new covenant community wherever two or three are gathered and in every member of the new covenant community in this time in between. He suffered in the first advent or first coming for us. He suffers with us in the second coming and presence with us in the Holy Spirit. And he will come again with salvation where there will be no more suffering no more pain anymore at all. Verse 13, no, let's go on rather to continue with verse 11 again. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come, alteration of the situation and are coming, alteration of the condition with a greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is not of this creation. He came to institute a new creation. Verse 12, he entered once and for all through the sanctuary not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained, and we're, 
We've seen, we've taken a look at this already, Herisco, having obtained is Herisco, H-E-U-R-I-S-K-O, that's the transliteration, Herisco, which means to find or to discover. We've looked at that recently. I believe we looked at it in increment 296 last Sunday. Now, so, verse 12, he entered once and for all through the sanctuary. That's not once a year, but once and for all. Not the archpriest like Aaron, but an archpriest after the order of Melchizedek. He entered into the sanctuary once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, the blood of Messiah. Having obtained, that means having found or discovered after a search, eternal redemption. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and it did, because there was blood associated with the old covenant. There was blood that initiated and instigated or inaugurated the old covenant. And the sprinkling of the blood of animals did serve to purify ritually and to purify in a ceremonial way in order to recover their fellowship with Israel. So if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people, that ashes, incidentally, the ashes of the young cow had to be sprinkled together with water. Water is going to be big here too, blood and water. If the blood of he goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and it did, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, that's our subject today, the general subject, ta haima to Christu, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. And that means to serve the living God as the new priests of the new covenant, as we have seen. Now, I'm going to present to you a quote by William L. Lane, one of the prominent commentaries I've been studying, and he's one of the prominent commentators. And this is one of those sayings that bears repetition. It's one of those sayings that is exquisite in its insight. And I want to repeat, I'll probably repeat it after today also. But the blood of Christ provide. this is Lane, again, the blood of Christ, that's our phrase for today, ta to Christu. The blood of Christ provides a graphic synonym for the death of Christ in its sacrificial significance. That is such a key for the interpretation of Hebrews, especially chapters 9 and 10. It, the blood of Christ provides a graphic synonym for the death of Christ in its sacrificial significance. So much fighting and infighting and divisiveness could have been spared if we had made this point clear when there was such a controversy years ago about blood and death and does the blood is the blood literal or is the blood figurative and that would have been solved if this had been just gently brought forth and so I speak 
as one who bears the fault of not doing that very well a while ago. But he goes on, he goes on to then say, the reference in the expression is not to the material substance, but to the action of Christ who offered himself to God. Does this bear repetition? I guess it does. The blood of Christ provides a graphic synonym for the death of Christ in its sacrificial significance. Hebrews emphasizes and capitalizes on the sacrificial significance of the death of Christ. Then he goes on again to conclude the reference in the expression is not to the material substance, but to the action of Christ who offered himself to God. Now, this is where we're going to move into relatively new territory, at least for me. The death of the testator, T-E-S-T-A-T-O-R in the English. Notice this little, par- this little paragraph we're about to enter is a singular paragraph in all of the New Testament. In fact, in all of the Bible. Only here, only here and nowhere else does this writer and no other writer make an analogy to a last will and testament to, and makes an analogy to that to the covenant, the new covenant, covenant and testament. And this also is going to, and I hope by the end of this message, I'll at least give a preliminary answer to this. Does the book that we sometimes carry around with us half of the Bible, called the New Testament, have the right title? Is it properly entitled the New Testament? Not the New Covenant, but the New Testament. Do these 27 canonical documents, God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, profitable most of all for a testimony of Jesus, does that book which we call the New Testament, have a proper title. Is it properly titled the New Testament? I'm going to answer that by the end of this message. I hope, if not, then it'll have to hold for another message in the future, but I think we'll get it today. Hebrews 9, note this. This is my translation with the brief inserts of commentary. You'll see it in print with bracketed commentary. And because of this, because of what? Because of the blood of Messiah, which serves to purify the conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. Because of this, and that means that this here means by reason of his death slash blood, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And this analogy, he's going to make this covenant a will and testament. I'm not going to distinguish will from testament, but a what we call a last will and testament in this brief analogy. That a death, now this, he, this is the death of the cross of the Lord Jesus. That a death, speaking here of the death of the cross of the Lord Jesus, that a death has taken place for redemption, What is redemption? Well, it's forgiveness. Forgiveness, apolutrosin, in Ephesians 1.7, is equated with redemption in Colossians 1.14 and Ephesians 1.7. Forgiveness of sin, redemption, that is the forgiveness of sin by the blood of Christ. So, 
that a death has taken place for forgiveness or for redemption of transgressions. See, the very fact that of transgressions follows means that redemption here is being spoken of with regard to its likeness to forgiveness or equation with forgiveness. That a death has taken place for the forgiveness of transgressions committed under the first covenant means that those who are called may receive the fulfillment of the promise of an everlasting inheritance. The inheritance being all things in Romans 4.13. If we know that, what Abraham was promised was to the cosmos, everything. He was promised the universe. And also in Romans 8.32, God gave his son. And he who gave his only son, shall he not with him give us all things? The inheritance is all things that will be given on the basis of the fact that his son was given for us all. What he's giving as an inheritance, is the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8. Now, this inheritance, in keeping with our universalistic commentary of Hebrews, is ultimately for all mankind, as we're going to find out. Because this is my blood of the covenant poured out, which is being poured out for many. Jesus meant all when he said many in Matthew 26, 28. I'm, I'm not going to belabor that point. I have in the past. I will in the future again, but I'm not going to belabor it right now. In this passage alone, the new covenant is considered through an analogy to a last will and testament. By this analogy, the words death and blood are correspondent. A death is required to have occurred for a will and testament to be effective. Specifically, the death of the maker of the will in the testament, which is the testator. And the Greek word is to, it's T-O-U, and then D-I-A. We have the word covenant right in here. But this has an analogy to last will and testament. Ho, D-I-A-T-H-E. M-E-N-O-S, diathemenos, diathemenos. And that means the testator, which is simply the maker of the last will and the covenant. The maker of the, rather, the last will and testament. The maker of a last will and testament. If that last will and testament is going to bring forth the promised inheritance that it promises, then first you have to have the death of the maker of the last will and testament. First, the testator has to die. And so we have here a correlation between death required to make effective the will and testament of a testator and blood being required to be poured out for the fulfillment of a covenant. In this case by the covenant maker. And so in this passage alone, the new covenant is considered through an analogy to a last will and testament. By this analogy, the word death and blood are correspondent. A death is required to have occurred for a will and testament to be effective, specifically the death of the maker of the will and testament, the testator, the maker of that testament. To diathemino is used again, Diathemenos is used 
in verse 16 and diathemenu is used in verse 17. You'll see that in print. And so there are two words here for testator, one in Hebrews 9.16, another in Hebrews 9.17. In 9.16, it's two diathemino, and in 9.17, in diathemenos. I probably mix these up, but you'll see it in print, and print covers a multitude of sins by moi. As a death is required for a will and testament to be in force, so blood has to be poured out for a covenant to be given force and its promises to be realized or go into effect. The inheritance here is that which is given to the undeserving at the cost of God and the divine man, Christ Jesus. I will say that again. The inheritance here is that which is given to the undeserving at the cost of God and the divine man, Christ Jesus. For the price was paid by the triune God for the manumission of mankind, their freedom from sin and its wages, which is death, and from enslavement to the sin-hijacked law. The inheritance in question comes about not by man giving his utmost for God, but by God giving his utmost for man. Not by my utmost for his highest, but by his utmost for my highest and best blessedness. For the highest and best blessedness, the supreme good of all of humanity in all its times and places, in all, of its, all reality distinct from God, that is, all of created reality, receives the benefit of God giving the utmost of himself, giving, in fact, his son. Those who are the called are the many sons and daughters that he calls to glory in Hebrews 2.10, the siblings of Jesus Christ, those whom he is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters, Hebrews 2.11. If we are to blend the insights that come from Romans with those of Hebrews, the called here are the foreknown. They are also the justified. The justified are ultimately all of humanity. In Romans 5.18, compared with 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6, for the scripture says, all sinned and all, same all, are justified by grace through the redemption that is by Christ Jesus. The only people that have ever been redeemed are people who have, been, who have sinned and all sinned, and all are redeemed and justified. Of course, Jesus, the sinless one, was also justified in a different sense, also redeemed and saved even in a different sense, for he was the one that God did not acquit of guilt in his death, but who did was justified in his resurrection because of his death. And so... By the one act of the righteousness of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, all are justified. There's only one that's righteous, and it's Jesus. And there's only one group justified, and it's all of mankind. Consequently, Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. Many, however, equals all human beings of all places and in all times, according to Romans 5, 18 and 19, 
in connection with Romans 8, 29 to 30, and compared with Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. So the church is appropriately called the called out ones. That's exactly what the church is, the called out ones. Ekklesia, E-K-K-L-A-E-S-I-A. Right in the middle is this word, is the root word kaleo, called, the called, ecclesia, the called. As many as he foreknew, those he called. And that's the church initially, but the church is also just a preview of the universal community of mankind who will all receive the inheritance, who will all be the objects of God's utmost from himself. Jesus, therefore, is the firstborn of many brethren, many equal all of humankind, ultimately. And the church, the new covenant community, the provisional universal community, is appropriately called the called out ones, ecclesia of the firstborn, Hebrews 12.23, Colossians 1.15, 1.18, Hebrews 1.6, Revelation 1.5. The church or the community or the assembly of the firstborn. That a death has occurred, that means that Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, comprises all of the church. Christ is all and he's in you all, but the church is provisional. It's only a preview of the coming universal community in which all will receive the inheritance because Christ died for the sins of all the world. That a death has occurred for the redemption or the forgiveness of transgressions committed under the first covenant, however, does not mean that sins committed before the giving of the first or the old covenant were not forgiven. Nor does it mean that the sins committed after the closure of the old covenant were not forgiven. Because for one thing, in Romans 3.25, we learn that there is also a demonstration of God's saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis. Meaning, among other things, that the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus on the cross also covers all people of the present epoch and the epoch between Adam and and Moses. Salvation covers all of humankind between Adam and Moses, and that's Romans 5.14, and also between Moses and Christ, and in Christ all past and future humanity of all places are contained and comprised. Moreover, as we've often considered, and it's due a frequent consideration. First John 2, 1 and 2 makes it clear that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world and that the whole world means all people in all times and places. Hebrews itself puts the accent on this fact saying that Jesus by the grace of God and we know the alternative translation to that or the alternate translation far from God, apart from God, or even without God, or except for God. All those translations are possible. But we can also say, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. 
That is the hallmark verse. That's the central verse. That's the title verse for our whole series that began way back in 2020. We see Jesus. Hopefully we see him with 2020 vision. The point here is that if a death occurred by which all the sins committed as violations of the first covenant were forgiven, then why is there need for the old covenant to continue with its ritual cultus and system of sacrifice? Good question. That covenant, in the words of Hebrews 8.13, is done away with altogether. It vanished. In our present, it vanished. In their present, it was about to vanish. In our present, it's vanished. In fact, in their present, it also vanished because the finished, of, the finished work of Christ is the vanishing of the old covenant. That covenant, in the word of Hebrews, words chosen by the Hebrews author in Hebrews 8.13, vanishes altogether. It's a necessity which was dramatically historically revealed with the destruction of the stone temple in Jerusalem, the location of the earthly tent, the wilderness tent, moved to the stone temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed in a month called August in A.D. 70. We happen to be in a month called August and approaching the very days in which that occurred, the anniversary of the days in which that occurred. A death has occurred by which redemption, that is the forgiveness of sins, has occurred by which not only the sins of the people under the first covenant were forgiven, but by which the sins of all the world of humanity in all its times were forgiven, thus accentuating even more heavily the abrogation or the abolition of the old covenant and the Levitical cultus associated or connected with it. Let's look at Hebrews 9.16 and emphasize it a little bit. For a will to take effect. The death of the maker of the will, i.e. the testator, to diathemenu, diathemenu, where the word covenant is right in there. For a will to take effect, the death of the maker of the will, that is the testator, must be established or proven. In other words, you need a death certificate. And here's Jesus' death certificate. I would ask you, unless you're driving or using heavy machinery or something like that, that you would turn to John chapter 19 and also 1 John chapter 5 for Jesus' death certificate. It's in the Bible. Yes, it is. The death of the testator has been proven. Evidence of the death of the testator has been presented to us unequivocally, irrefutably, incontrovertibly in the scriptures. For a will and testament to be in force and effect, there must be evidence of the death of the testator. An official death certificate suffices legally. The evidence, at least it did in the time in which this was written, the evidence of Jesus' death was more explicitly evinced and the certificate or record of that death was provided by a man called the disciple whom Jesus loved. The ideal human witness of Jesus' crucifixion as we see from John 19, 34 to 35. In fact, 
The evidence of the death of the testator was provided right here, and that's why the beloved disciple says in John 19.34, my translation with limited bracketed commentary reads like this of John 19.34 and 35. In fact, all the way through verse 36, because surprise of surprises, the lamb is brought to bear in this whole thing. But one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side. He took a spear or a javelin and went between the ribs of Jesus, the upper ribs, with his spear. And immediately there came out blood and water. Haimakai hudor. Blood and water. Verse 35, and the one who saw this. That means he really saw it and saw it's in... He saw its intimate closeness, saw its significance. The one who saw this, this beloved disciple, this disciple whom Jesus loved, saw Jesus in the most intimate, the most immediate way with his physical eyes, saw him dead, saw the death of the maker of the will, saw the mediator of the new covenant and the evidence that the death of, of his death in the blood and water that immediately came out of Jesus' side when the spear penetrated between his ribs of his chest cavity. So uh, let me start again with verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side between his ribs with his spear and immediately the came out blood and water. And the one who saw this has borne witness and his testimony is true that of an eyewitness. And he knows that he's telling the truth in order that you may also believe, that you also may believe. For these things happen just this way, so the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. That is such a condensed and dense passage of scripture, for it brings in the death of the testator, the blood of the lamb, the blood and water, the testimony and evidence of death of the testator, but also the prophecy of the lamb that not one of his bones will be broken, which identifies Jesus as the archetype of the Passover lamb. All of this is conglomerates and comes together and coalesces in that splendid climactic passage in John. As the elder John, I think it's the same writer, the same beloved disciple, says in 1 John 5, 6, please note this and note it well. This one is he who came. Remember the three comings of Jesus Christ? This is the first coming of Jesus Christ. This is he who came, the first coming of Jesus Christ, by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, this may mean many things to many people, but to me, in our passage right now, the water and the blood is the proof of the death of the testator. The coming out of blood, the issuance of blood with water, blood clots and serum, as some have said, is proof of the death of the testator, proof of the death of the one who said, as he approached the cross, this Speaking of the cup of, of the fruit of the vine, this represents my blood of the new covenant, meaning my blood that makes effective 
the new covenant. As his death makes effective the last will and testament of the testator, his blood makes effective the covenant and all the promises of the covenant, not the least of which all will know me from the least to the greatest, says God. So the one is this one, Jesus Christ says, is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. I love how that he places his name right there. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. That is the proof of the death of the testator. First John 5, 6, John 19, 34 to 35 are that is proof, the death certificate. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. Here we have pneumatology along with Christology, for the second coming of Jesus Christ is the coming in which he came in the Spirit and indwells the church. And so we have all, all kinds of things coalescing in this passage, the blood and the water. He came by the blood and the water. And that means, among other things, that at the closure of his first coming, blood and water gave testimony to the death of the testator and therefore the freedom of God the Father to pass the inheritance to those for whom the blood was poured out. And that's everybody. In John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Here in Alpha John, which we know as 1 John, the Spirit is the truth, it says. The Spirit is the truth. That is an amazing statement. And don't let it confuse you. Let it reveal to you the mystery of the triune God. <clears throat> the Spirit is the truth that is embodied in Jesus Christ and incarnate in him. The Spirit is the truth, the reality that's embodied in Jesus Christ, the meaning that is incarnate in Jesus, the divine man. Beyond this, and amazingly, the portrayal here is of the special ideal, of the special, this special ideal witness called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved is not John Zebedee, arguably, not John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. This is another witness, someone outside the circle of the twelve, but someone inside a closer circle with Jesus than any in the twelve. In that close circle, Mary Magdalene is, is included. In that close circle, there are the inclusion of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And there is... Martha and Mary of Bethany and there is this beloved disciple and other unnamed disciples who came forward to show that there were other witnesses that were even more ideal than the 12 who aren't, weren't always really present to the presence of Jesus Christ and really cognizant of the meaning of the things he was doing until later when the Holy Spirit came. So this beloved disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, reclined at table close beside Jesus, John 13, 23. He leaned just a little bit, and when he did, he leaned right against Jesus at supper and asked him who was betraying him, John 21, 20. This disciple whom Jesus loved 
was standing nearby, that's the key verse, nearby Jesus crucified. The 12 had scattered. This guy was right up in the proximity to the cross, John. The, his name was John. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was right close to Jesus. He's the only one, the only witness. I won't say the only one, but he is the witness who, unlike the 12, heard Jesus mouth the word to Telestai because he was close enough to hear it. He saw and testified on record of Jesus' death in John 19.35. This disciple whom Jesus loved was an eyewitness of the empty tomb of the risen Jesus in John 20 and verse 2. And he was the recipient of the first gospel or proclamation of the resurrection human one, Mary Magdala, Magdala. Who was recognized, he's the one who recognized Jesus when Jesus appeared to the seven select disciples on the shore of Lake Tiberias in John 21 7. He is the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loves, who testifies to all these things and who wrote them down, and whose testimony was known by the entire community of believers at the time to be a, a testimony of integrity, that he was a witness with integrity. And so he was known to be true by the whole community of believers who signed off on his witness in John 21, 24. Remember, there were 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, too, following that. This beloved disciple gave the testimony, which is that of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away or who at that moment had taken away the sin of the world. The death of the testator and the blood of the lamb came together here. They come together as themes here, motifs, as they do in Hebrews 9, but especially in our passage under consideration now, 9, 12 through 18. Hebrews 9, 17, for a will goes into effect only when people die since it is never in force when the maker of the will, the testator, in this case Jesus, Hodiathemenos, is still alive. In this same vein, the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. So death and blood here. Death and the evidence of which was needed to be to make the will go into effect. And now we have blood which needed to be in evidence in order for the covenant to be in effect. There is therefore a correspondence between death and blood, blood and death, death as a sacrificial death noted by the term blood. The inheritance is given when evidence of the death of the testator is provided. This Hebrew writer is, is a mind-blowingly open man to the insights of the Holy Spirit. He's got a galaxy of insights throughout Hebrews. That's why I'm taking my time to do this whole sermon. The inheritance is given when evidence of the death of the testator is provided. 
The outflow of blood and water from Jesus' chest cavity after being pierced between the ribs by the spear of the Roman soldier provided proof of the death of the testator. The water in the blood is also evocative. Now listen to this. Watch how this goes. This, this is actually astonishing. The water and the blood is also evocative of the action of Moses, who was the intermediary of the Old Covenant. When in the very next two verses, look at them, Hebrews 9.19, he, Moses, took the blood of calves and of he-goats with water. Blood with water. And with an applicator of scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the scroll, that's the scroll of the law, thank God, sprinkled by the blood, itself and all the people. A type of all people being benefited by the blood of Christ, Exodus 24, 6, while saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God ordained for you. Who said that? Moses said that. This is the blood of the covenant which God ordained for you. It was blood along with water. And this can be, indeed, this must be compared and contrasted, the law of similarity and dissimilarity, with Jesus' declaration in Matthew 26. This is my blood, not the blood. This is my blood that gives force to the new covenant. My blood of the new covenant means this is my blood that gives force to, that makes effective the new covenant and all the promises associated with it in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That makes the new covenant effective, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For many, remember many is an understatement for all in 1 Timothy 2, 6. And so this man, this divine man, Christ Jesus, is the place of expiation, that place where sin was born away, taken away, removed. And he is the place of propitiation where he endured the burning wrath of God against sin as the final sin offering, as having become sin itself and per se and having become the whole burnt offering in Hebrews 10, 6, 10, 8, Psalm 40, verse 6, Septuagint 39, 7. The whole burnt offering, the Holocaust, which was typified in the whole burnt offering, which God did not require for eternal salvation. What he required is the Holocaust of the real Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was consumed in the burning wrath of God against sin when he became sin for us. And this divine man, the mediator between all of God and all men, as embodying in himself all of God in essence and all men in representation. This is what it means that Jesus is the mediator between all of God and all of men, as embodying in himself all of God in essence bodily, in Colossians 2.9, and all men in representation as the second man, the second and final Adam. 
Moreover, this divine man, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant. Moses may be the intermediary and not strictly the mediator of the old covenant. Paul and we, as all as all the Christian community, may be ministers of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. But Jesus is uniquely the mediator and the guarantor of the new covenant as well. According to the unique analogy in Hebrews 9, 15 to 17, he is the testator of the New Testament. As mediator between God and man, he is not merely an intermediate being. No, he is God, but he's also man, fully human and yet without sin. He is not some intermediate being between God and man, but he is God and man in one person. That Jesus is the sole mediator, S-O-L-E, mediator, between God and man also means that he is the sole mediator of the new covenant as we're seeing in Hebrews 9, 15 to 18 right now. As the mediator of the new covenant, he has become responsible for both God and man's part in the covenant. He is therefore also called the guarantor the one who gives assurance regarding the better promises which accompany the new covenant. As such, Jesus is also the guarantee of the covenant's fulfillment. In fact, he is the place and the person of its fulfillment. For that reason, he says, again, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, by contrast, Moses was not strictly the mediator of the old covenant, in the same way Jesus was of the new, but Moses was better translated of Mesites in that case, in Galatians 3.19 and 20, an intermediary. The law came by Moses, but he was not a mediator like Jesus. Moses was simply an intermediary who delivered the terms of the old covenant, the law, to the people of Israel. Moses was not a guarantor or a guarantee of the old covenant's fulfillment. That, again, is Jesus. He said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill or complete or make full the law. The old covenant was also ordered through angels who are intermediate beings between God and man, beings that are neither divine nor human. The Old Covenant was ordered through angels by the hand of an intermediary, is the best translation of Galatians 3.19. So the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ in John 1.17. The law came through the intermediary, Moses, a man, a chosen man to be sure, a special man, no doubt. In fact, the most humble man on the earth in his own day, in Numbers 12, 3. But grace and truth, a veritable name for the new covenant, came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, a prophet. Grace and truth came by the prophet of whom Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, compared with John 1, 21, 125, 614, 740, 
Acts 3.22, 3.23, and 7.37. Jesus is a prophet like Moses in that God speaks his will through him to the people of Israel. But Jesus is a prophet unlike Moses because Jesus is the Word, capital W-O-R-D, the Son in whom God spoke with finality in these last days, who made purification for sins. That means all the sins of the world, Hebrews 1.3, in connection with 1 John 2.2, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high in Hebrews 1.2-3. The prophet is also the word spoken by God, the word of grace in Acts 20.32, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, ours and the whole world's, Ephesians 1.3, compared with John 3.17 and 4.42. So the superiority of Jesus over Moses is a protracted theme in Hebrews. As we already saw, Moses will be mentioned again in Hebrews 9.19 as the man through whom every commandment had been proclaimed to all the people according to the law. He will also be spoken of as sprinkling the scroll of the law and all the people with the blood of calves and goats along with water using scarlet wool and hyssop as an applicator while saying this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. Hebrews 9, 19 to 20, and you can confer to Exodus 24, 8. In the same way, Moses also sprinkled the tent itself and all the vessels used in worship in Hebrews 9, 21. The teaching shepherd then gives forth this salient twofold principle. Indeed, he says in verse 22 of Hebrews 9, according to the law, almost everything was cleansed by blood, and without the pouring of blood, there is no forgiveness. This, in turn, leads to the consideration of the greater pouring of blood and the greater sprinkling of blood, that of Jesus, by which not almost everything, but everything was cleansed and the greater sacrifices that were required to purify the heavenly things themselves. That's a mystery, but we'll untangle that a little bit or at least show it a little bit in Hebrews 9.23, including the purification of the consciences of the worshipers. With this extended passage then, the teaching shepherd and indeed the hegemonic Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth, the spirit of grace and of truth, is leading us on a blood trail. The blood trail leads in turn to a micro-apocalypse in Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, which I call the apocalypse of the three appearings. Three appearings. There are two appearances in the sense that Jesus appears as a high priest twice, But there's also three appearings in Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. We'll make that fine cut perhaps soon. We have already studied the three comings of Jesus in increment 295 last Wednesday. Now, in this increment, which is increment 297, we have the privilege of studying a unique passage in which there is an analogy between the word covenant and testament as in last will and testament. As a covenant to be in force required blood, for a testament to be in force, there had to be death. A death which is proven 
to have happened by evidence. Here, blood and death blend into one concept, so the blood of the new covenant and the death of the testator of a will and testament are seen to be dynamically equivalent in meaning and significance. So the writer here has really lent us a wonderful lens to view more clearly just what it means to have Christ pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. As there is forgiveness only by the pouring forth of blood, so an inheritance is delivered to designated beneficiaries only by a death having occurred, namely the death of the testator, or the testator, we might say, the one who had left a valid will. In this study, we will also affirm that in fact, a proper title for the compendium of the final 27 documents of the Bible can rightly be called the New Testament. Why? Because it is the testimony of the testator, the will maker, and of his death, and the record of what God willed to all the beneficiaries of his death. The New Testament is rightly understood as the reading of this will intended to be heard by all its beneficiaries in 1 Corinthians 2.10-12 and Ephesians 3.8. It is all the gracious benefits that accrue to us as those for whom God required the utmost of himself and for whom Jesus offered himself once and for all at the termini of the ages to remove sin. Thank you, Father, for this. Thank you that a death not only occurred, but was evinced and seen by the beloved disciple. Thank you, Father, for the poured out blood of your son and the offered body of your son. We partake of this blood and this body in what is known as eternal salvation, eternal redemption. Thank you that he found that eternal redemption for us, that he discovered that he discovered it after a search, as it were, and that he brought it back, and that we have that eternal redemption by his blood, the blood of Messiah. Father, we are ever grateful for this. Make us ever more grateful for it. Reveal it in its clarity. Reveal it in its ultimate crystal clarity to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.